covenant people of God, the scripture teaches us that we must leave vengeance to the Lord. We are not to pay back evil for evil. And this is something that is taught, for example, in Romans 12, verses 17 to 20. And it's also, it also comes up in Leviticus 19, verse 18, as we just read a moment ago. I mentioned last week that forgiving someone when they sin against us is largely a matter of letting go. That's what the word forgiveness actually means. It means that we are to let go of the desire for revenge. We are to let go of any tendency to hold on to grudges. This morning I want to focus on what that means. It's easy to talk about that in a summary kind of way and to say, yes, we, we don't hold grudges, we are not to take vengeance, we are to forgive those who do evil to us. It's easy to say those things, but I want to focus on just what that means. And the reason I want to do that is that there are at least two problems that the Christian often faces as we try to put these commands into practice. One problem is that we often say that we hold no grudge, but it is rather that we have become more subtle about our grudge. Uh, it, it goes underground. And then we say, oh, I've got no problem. But in fact, we may very well have a problem, but just a more subtle one. And the other difficulty that we face is that this command that we not take revenge implies, as do all of the, the uh, prohibitions that we find in God's word, uh, they all imply something positive, the opposite side of the coin, a positive way of treating our brother, a positive way of treating those who sin against us. And our difficulty is that even if we avoid overt, open hostility, we may st still at the same time fail to treat others in a positive way that the scripture expects of us. To help us deal with those two problems, we look at the text under two headings. First of all, the golden rule, as it's sometimes called, and secondly, the golden rule applied to enemies. The golden rule, what it means, and then how we apply it to enemies. <clears throat> In the first place, the golden rule is uh, very well known in our society. People often use the expression, they talk about the golden rule. It has become something of a cliche, uh, something that is uh, overused <clears throat> by, uh, by people in our society, and that's due to the influence of the Bible. We find it in verse 31, the scripture's way of putting this rule, treat others the same way you want them to treat you or as people say popularly in our society, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's the popular way of putting it. Unfortunately, most people in our society understand this rule, this golden rule as it's called, in a, a rather selfish way. What they often mean by it is, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. You do something good for me and I'll do something good for you. It's understood and practiced in a very selfish way. Be nice to others at work. Be nice to people in general in the belief that what goes around comes around. The Christian, by way of contrast, understands 
Firstly, how we are to treat ourselves in a very different way than the unbeliever regards this. The Christian has a different view of how we ought to treat ourselves and therefore the Christian has a very different view of how we ought to treat others. The Christian knows, firstly, that we should treat ourselves according to God's word. The Christian knows that we are a people who are called to obey God's word, to keep his commandments, and also a people who are called to accept his gracious promises. Both of those things, accept and believe in the promises of God in Jesus Christ, but then work that out by a life of gratitude and obedience. And both of those things are very important. The Christian knows that he is to treat himself according to the Ten Commandments and all of the things that follow from that. And he is also to accept himself as forgiven in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to accept the promises of God as well. And to do that is to love oneself biblically. The Christian knows also that he is to love his neighbour that he is to treat his neighbour as he does himself according to the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and also in a way that accepts and acts upon the promises of God, the grace of God and his mercy. And so if he deals with a believer, treating another as he treats himself, uh, if he's dealing with a believer, means that he accepts this believer as a fellow forgiven sinner, and as a brother. And if he deals with an unbeliever, following this rule, treating the unbeliever as uh, he would wish to be treated himself, then he regards the unbeliever as a sinner who needs to be converted according to God's electing purposes, if he is not already converted. The Christian knows that following this rule means that he is to treat the other in the way of the Ten Commandments as we decide how we will act toward him. We are to act according to God's godly rule in the way we treat others. And we are to urge others to act according to this rule as well because that is for our welfare and theirs. And the Christian knows that as we follow this rule, we are to not only uh, treat our brother in the right way as it comes from us, but also to, to urge him to act upon the promises of God as well. And if he's not a believer, then at least we still may treat him as an image bearer of God. Continuing the contrast, the Christian wants to do all of this for a different reason than the unbeliever does it. He wants to do this for the sake of the Lord and for his glory. We treat ourselves and we also treat others the way that we do in order to serve the Lord and not to serve ourselves. And we do that, we serve God's glory whenever we demonstrate his grace and his mercy by treating another sinner with grace and mercy ourselves. We do this, we honour God when uh, we call upon someone else to pay attention to God's promises. We do it when we call upon someone to uh, consider the salvation that has been offered in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also serve his glory 
Whenever we demonstrate God's law, it's not only grace, but also God's law. Whenever we demonstrate the rule of gratitude, God's way of life. When we demonstrate it in how we treat ourselves and how we treat others. Note in this connection that verse 36 goes on to say, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And verse 35, similarly, then you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind. So how we treat ourselves and others is tied back to the fact that we are sons of the Most High. We are adopted sons and we are called to reflect God's nature. To do so, so that others can see what his nature is and praise him and give glory to him to him as well. And that is not a selfish motive. You see here the difference uh, in the way that we carry out this rule and the way that the unbeliever does in that this is not to be done from a selfish motive. And the fact that it is not anything to do with selfishness is made clear by verses 30 and 35 which tell us not even to expect anything back for what we do. And uh, that ought to alert us to the fact that the golden rule is not about uh, our selfish gains, but it is about God's glory. Notice also what I've been implying here, that carrying out the golden rule is not only about grace and mercy and forgiveness, it is also about God's law, and God's law includes uh, issues of justice and also penalties, punishment. After all, we are called to demonstrate God's nature as his sons for his glory. But he is not just a God of love and a God of mercy and a God of forgiveness. He is that, but that is not all that he is. He is also a God who is holy and just and a God who hates and is wrathful against sin. And the way we treat ourselves ought to reflect all of that. And the way we treat others ought to reflect all of that. And that's why as Christians, as I said the other week, we insist on justice, we insist on punishment for crimes, and we insist on discipline within the church for sins, also within our Christian family, with our children, and even we are willing to excommunicate the unrepentant, and we would hope that the same things would be done for, it, for us should we be guilty of crimes or unrepentant of our sins, we should actually hope that we would be treated in this way too, to be dealt with in justice and also to be disciplined, because that is for our good as well as for God's glory. And we also then insist and hope that this would be the way that others are treated, because that too is for their good and for God's glory. But at the same time, we insist on, and we insist strongly upon it, upon mercy and grace and personal forgiveness as many times as necessary, 70 times 7, just as we would want done for us, because this shows God's glory as well. It shows his nature, his mercy, his compassionate nature, and this too is for our welfare. 
Sadly, we don't always act for God's glory or our own welfare, either in the way we treat ourselves or the way we treat others. We break God's laws in such a way that an outside observer might be forgiven for thinking that uh, the message we wish to convey is that disobedience to God is both a fun thing and a beneficial thing for us. That, no doubt, is the impression that we would sometimes give from the way that we act. And in addition to that, we omit things that are required. We give precisely the wrong example, uh, and also we fail to do other things that are required of us. We act at times as if we don't believe God's promises. We fail in our gratitude. That's, a, that's a, a sign that would seem to indicate that we don't believe the promises. If we did, how grateful should we be? And at other times, we fail to forgive ourselves. Uh, God has proclaimed that we are forgiven in Christ, but sometimes we dwell on our past sins in such a way that uh, we, it would seem that we don't believe his promise in Christ. And the result from that can be a lot of guilt, and guilt's a very destructive force. And not surprisingly, because we don't get right this fundamental issue of uh, this uh, point, as you would have them do unto you, uh, how we treat ourselves, we don't get that part right. And it is not surprising, therefore, that we mess up the other side of the equation, how we then treat others as we do ourselves. We encourage others to break God's laws or to ignore his laws by, by our words and by our example. We encourage others to ignore God's promises and grace by our words or by our example. So you see, we need the grace of God all the more. This whole passage is uh, filled with implications about the grace of God and one thing that ought to become clear as we read it is just how much we need it. We need it all the more as we understand our failures with the golden rule as it's sometimes called. How much we need mercy from the one who obeyed the whole of God's law and who at every point in his life on this earth acted in faith and trust upon every command that God gave to him, every task he set him to do, and every promise that he gave to his son. And not only did he do all of that, but on top of that, he paid the penalty for every single one of our failures to do the same. For all of the elect throughout all of history. He is the Christ who did perfectly unto himself according to God's way and perfectly unto others so that we could be forgiven. Forgiven for our numerous violations of this golden rule and numerous muddyings of his name. Ask him to help you with this rule because he surely knows how to do unto you he knows how to do unto you fully and perfectly through his Son, because his Son knew how to do fully and perfectly unto his Father, unto himself, as well as unto the world. Now, the golden rule is one that we break quite regularly with ourselves every day. 
And we also break this rule with the ones that we love the most, those who are closest to us. We also break the golden rule with those to whom we feel somewhat neutral. But of course the hardest situation in which to apply these things is when we deal with an enemy. Whether it is a non-Christian who is ridiculing us or persecuting us in some other way or behaving in a way that disgusts us or whether it is a brother whom we regard as an enemy and that also happens, it shouldn't happen. The scripture teaches, uh, the Lord tells us that in the Lord Jesus Christ, not a single one of our brothers is in fact an enemy. On the contrary, they are brothers. But the way we regard each other and the way that we treat each other is quite different. Ought not to be, but sadly it is. But when we deal with brothers, especially that, and sometimes also with our neighbour in general, because we're Christians... We don't like to admit that there's an element of hatred in our hearts. We tell ourselves and we tell anybody else who would question, no, I don't hate him or her. There's no grudge. It's not like I hold a grudge or anything. And I can certainly forgive him or her for those horrible things that they have done to me or said about me. And we can sit at the Lord's table together. Just don't ask me to forget what they have done to me. Well, I mentioned some of the indicators last week, and I want to add to that a little. uh, Some of the indicators that might help us to know if we're actually kidding ourselves and uh, trying to fool others that there's no hatred or grudge within us towards any brother or sister. One of these indicators is that we don't want anything more than minimal contact with that other person. We don't really want anything more than minimal conversation. We, wherever we can, we maintain minimal eye contact. That's often a giveaway, though not always. And we endure the briefest possible handshake possible uh, and break that off as quickly as we can. Because, again, as an indicator of inner problems and feelings. Another way, another indicator is when we find ourselves putting the worst possible interpretations on the actions of others. Sometimes referred to as evil suspicions. And one of the signs that we're doing that is when, if we can be honest with ourselves enough to to examine ourselves in this is when we find ourselves constantly being embarrassed. If we find ourselves constantly having to be corrected, no, the person didn't say that, they didn't do that, or they didn't mean that, and later evidence bears it out. Oh, okay, well that's good to hear. If we find ourselves in that situation often, it may well be an indication that in our heart uh, we have an attitude of vengeance, a desire for revenge towards that person. Then, of course, there are the put-downs. Putting the person down in our mind the way we think of them, putting them down in our speech, and putting them down before others, which becomes either gossip or slander. But, of course, even if we do all of that, it's not like we actually hate him, is it? It's not like we hold a grudge 
or that we're seeking revenge. Well, these are signs, some of the more obvious signs of what is actually quite an active desire for revenge. And those kind of things are forbidden because they lead us to and tempt us to take the Lord's place, as it were, to usurp the Lord's place as our judge. He alone has that right. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. It's not our right or position. And that's one of the reasons the scripture forbids it. But it's not only these these active forms of vengeance where we actually try to do something to get back, to hurt another person who's hurt us. It's not only that, uh, sins of commission, what we do, but also, as I mentioned before, there are sins of omission. The things we leave out are failure to act, to act positively, Uh, Not only the issue of whether we're acting uh, badly or hatefully in an open way, but whether we are acting positively for our brothers, for our enemies' welfare. Remember, the issue here is, how would you like your enemies, how do you believe your enemies ought to treat you, based on how you believe you ought to be treated and you ought to treat yourself based in turn on how the Lord treats you according to his word. Now what happens when you hurt yourself? What happens when you harm yourself? You realise you've done something foolish. Consequences have come and you've suffered the penalty. You've suffered because of that. So how do you feel about yourself when you realise you've hurt yourself? Well, of course, the matter is quickly forgotten. You quickly forgive yourself most times and move on. It doesn't stop you from acting in your own interests and for your own welfare and your own advantage for one minute, generally speaking. And when you hurt someone else, when you've hurt them and that matter comes to light... Do you not generally hope and prefer it if they also will forget about the whole thing very quickly and not for one minute let it stop them for acting for your welfare and continuing to do good to you as if nothing was wrong? Isn't that the way we like to be treated? But when others hurt us, suddenly the whole thing changes. And it's a very different picture. Suddenly we turn the tables and we want our pound of flesh. And that, brothers and sisters, is a double standard. See how the Lord Jesus calls upon us to apply the golden rule, to apply this to those who offend and hurt us, our enemies, those we regard as our enemies. Love your enemies, do good to them, verse 27. Bless and pray for them, those who curse you, those who mistreat you, verse 28. Give to all who ask and don't demand a, uh, an exact one-for-one return from them, verses 30 and 34. It's been suggested that here in this passage... The Lord Jesus is referring to certain laws that the Roman occupiers had in Palestine. 
Uh, one of those laws was that if a Roman soldier was cold, he could demand the outer garment on your back. He could demand the cloak from a Jew who just happened to be walking past on the road. And another law that if a Jew was uh, passing by a soldier and he had a heavy pack on or some other heavy kind of load, he could by law force that Jew to take his pack and carry it for a certain distance. And another law that if a Roman became annoyed with a Jew, irritated by a Jew or some other uh, person in an occupied country, uh, he could strike that person with impunity. He would get away with it. The law uh, let him get away with that. And as a result, and not only for that reason, the Jews hated the Romans. They hated them with a bitter hatred, those occupiers who had uh, taken over their country and uh, people who had laws like this that they could uh, demean you and uh, treat you with such lack of dignity by law in these ways. But the Lord Jesus says to to the people, not only that they have to ignore these insults and not only that they have to uh, suppress their feelings of anger and hatred and somehow become neutral or even towards those people. No, he goes much further than that and he starts talking about going the extra mile and turning the other cheek to that striker and not only giving him the coat off your back but the, the inner shirt, the garment as well, underneath the coat. He's telling them that they must act in love, they must act for the enemy's welfare and as such give even more than he has demanded. Even though with with people like this, with Roman soldiers and so on, with other enemies, most likely you're going to get nothing back from them other than more insults and they'll take advantage of you and no one likes that. Isn't that one of the reasons we often withhold these things? Because we don't like to be taken advantage of. This is, of course, very difficult with those we regard as enemies, those about whom we have bad feelings. But a Christian has both the grace of God to help him with this through his word and his spirit, and we have a motivation that others don't have. We have a motivation that comes from the example of God himself. We are, after all, sons of the Most High. He himself is kind to ungrateful and wicked men, evil men, verse 35. He is kind to evil men in common grace, as it's sometimes called. He's kind even to totally ungrateful unbelievers, sending rain and sunshine and many other temporal blessings for them. But he is especially kind in special grace through the Lord Jesus Christ to his children in that he sent his son to die for us while we were still enemies. While we were still to him, as the Roman soldiers were to the Jews, whose country they occupied. And he sent his son to die for us, moreover, knowing that once we were his children, we would be as frequently ungrateful for what he has done as we are. And he knew all of that ahead of time, and still he sent his son to die for us while we were enemies. He gave to us far, far more than the other cheek, or the cheek of his son, which we slapped, both of them. Both, we slapped him on both sides of the face. 
through the uh, human race. The human race did that through the Jews and the Romans crucifying him. He gave far more than the inner shirt. Lord Jesus literally had everything, all his clothing stripped from him. And he went far more than the extra mile. God gave the life of his son and the son gave up his life to the ungrateful and to evil men and that refers also to us as we were or would be outside of him. Though as I've indicated before, this does not mean that he will not at the end send the reprobate to hell and also in this life discipline the elect for our ingratitude. When we're motivated by Christ's example and uh, follow through the implications of his work for us, we find ourselves with this paradox that we become people who expect nothing back from from our enemy. We, uh, We don't act on the basis that we have to get something back, that there has to be some sort of uh, reciprocation, getting something back more or less equal to what we gave out. As Christians, we learn not to act like that anymore, not with each other, not with our neighbour, and not even with our enemy. And the paradox, the irony of that, is that as we become like that, then our reward will actually be very great. We learn to give up the desire for a reward... And as a result, we gain a great reward. Verse 35. If this is done in the Lord Jesus Christ and for his sake. And it's not because our love of our enemy and our kindness to them and the way we treat them, not because that deserves a reward, but rather because it is in this way that we show who we are, that we are indeed sons of the Most High. And that is what we are. And because we are sons of the Most High, then we gain the reward that is due not to us as such, but due to the perfect giver to enemies, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're not at all motivated by that, we may actually be doing kind things to enemies, but if it's not even for the right reason, if we're not motivated by his work and his example, the Lord Jesus, that simply means we don't know him, and then we will end up, eventually, with every last bit of mercy from God drying up, even the common grace stuff. Now, in another context, I think I've uh, suggested this before, um, that it might be worth thinking of that person in our congregation that you least like, the one you have most against, the person or persons who have most offended you, who have most hurt you in the past. Now, what does the Lord require of you with respect to that person? On the one hand, he requires, and this is the, uh, let's say on on the negative side, he requires that there be no subtle revenge, not by thought, not by word, not by deed, not even by look. He also requires that... Uh, we don't avoid, we don't seek, you don't seek to avoid that person out of a desire for revenge. No gossip, no slander, no putting down. 
No holding evil suspicions. No putting the worst interpretation on his actions and words where other interpretations are possible. That's the negative side. On the positive side, you must positively seek his welfare. You must bless him. Be a blessing to him. Pray for him. Help him according to his needs. Lend to him according to his needs. And do so even if he is demanding and obnoxious and there is no hope of any reciprocal treatment from him, nothing good that you will get back from him. Treat him the way you believe you should be treated. This is the way that God says we ought to treat an enemy. And the implication of that, that this is the way that we ought to treat everybody. Even in the most extreme case, an enemy, then also others, those to whom we're neutral, those to whom we like and love, everybody, and especially those of the household of faith. Tall order? Well, yes, God is a God who gives tall orders, but thankfully he is also a God who fills tall orders. Take all of the above requirements. Multiply them by, say, 70 times 7, and you have the beginnings of an idea of what God has done for you. What he's done for you through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do unto others as you would have done unto yourself, and do unto yourself as God has done unto you in Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, when others mistreat and insult us, and even when they hurt us repeatedly, when they become our enemies, Father, help us to have a forgiving attitude. And help us to look for every opportunity to help them, to do good to them, to go the extra mile for them. Father, enable us to do this because we are your children and we want to follow your way of mercy, of kindness, of forgiveness and of mercy. That which was shown to us while we were yet your enemies through the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. If we practice doing good and going the extra mile, especially with our brethren, this goes a very long way to fostering congregational unity. Psalm 133 tells of the joys of that.